Carla Spindell, Executive Director with DC Ken Care Alliance, and this is our podcast episode where we have a special guest, Christian Green. I'm also joined by my colleague, Stephanie McClellan. We are so excited to have Christian Green as a guest today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her, and then we'll get right into it. Christian Green is a West Coast native and is a clinical social worker who's been practicing in D.C. child welfare for the last 15 years, which has included working as a child protective services social worker, CPS supervisory social worker, medical abuse and special needs specialist and liaison, and the internal ombudsperson with the D.C. Child and Family Services Agency, also known as CFSA. She currently works as a civil rights advocate, consultant, and trainer on child welfare issues. Christian is an expert in medical child abuse, investigations, and DC child welfare. She is committed to ensuring the safety of children, the well-being of the social work workforce, and accountability of CFSA through the establishment of an independent ombudsperson for child safety and well-being. Christian has a Bachelor of Science degree from Oregon State University, earning majors in Ethnic Studies and Women's Studies and a minor in Philosophy. She received her Master's in Social Work from Howard University and is licensed to practice social work in four states and the District of Columbia. Welcome, Christian. Thank you. We're really excited to talk to you today because we have learned so much from working with you and getting the benefit of your expertise, and we thought we would want to share that with other people in the community to educate them about D.C. child welfare and child welfare in general. Sounds good. Okay, great. Let's just get into a general discussion about child welfare in D.C. since you have intimate knowledge about the child welfare agency, how it works on the inside, and why you are concerned now that you're no longer there about the way that the agency works and why that is potentially detrimental to children. I've been practicing in D.C. for 15 years. And on even the best days, child welfare is messy and complicated and overwhelming. And for those being investigated or at the hands of child welfare, it's extremely personal. Whereas a social worker, it should be professional and you should be responding with a clinical insight. My concern about DC is that we have some really great clinicians on the front line making assessments of children, making recommendations for safety and well-being of children to obviously prevent abuse and neglect, but in worst-case scenarios, death. My concern is that there's a disconnect in leadership and a disconnect in policies and procedures that essentially whitewash clinical decisions or undermine clinical decisions of the social worker regarding the safety of the child. And what happens in those circumstances is you take the person who witnessed or bore witness as we talk about the child disclosure or conducted the investigation, you take their clinical assessment and you leave it to an individual who's not a clinician who might have a background in communication or something else that is not pertinent to social services. And then you allow the clinical decision to have the final say by 
a person who is not a clinician, it undermines the ability to ensure safety or the state's duty to ensure safety of that child. And that's really been my big concern with child welfare in the district. You see it with the court oversight. You see it with the current leadership and historical leadership of CFSA. And you just see it through the spokespersons of child welfare because it's so political. And often you have lawyers speaking on behalf of the clinicians rather than the clinicians themselves, or you have final decisions being made by other parties. So let's just back up a second there. Can you tell us how it works as far as who are the clinicians, what jobs do they have, and then when you're talking about their decisions being overruled by non-clinicians? Is that at the supervisory level? Why would someone even above a supervisory level get involved in making those kind of decisions? Yeah, so in the District of Columbia, in order to practice child welfare, you have to have a master's in social work and a licensure, so at least a graduate level licensure to be a frontline social worker. So those are heavily regulated pieces of the puzzle. There are requirements for social workers to be assigned to cases. There's also a stance by the agency that they feel that they need to be at least master's level licensure. But you at least have to have that baseline. And those clinicians go out into the field every day and make assessments of safety and well-being. And they're using their clinical skills. They're using their knowledge of the local law, what is defined as abuse and neglect. And they're making an assessment. And obviously, you're dealing with a whole person. So when the clinician goes out into the field, if there's a question about removal or intervention, they're going to be consulting their supervisor. And in the district, for the supervisor level in child protective services or throughout the agency, you have to have a licensed independent clinical social worker. So at least two years of clinical practice, you have to have passed the test and received your licensure in the district. So that supervisor is going to support the social workers' firsthand knowledge, give them steps and avenues to protect the child. And if there's a decision that the child needs protection through a removal, the supervisor is going to run it up their chain of command. And what the current chain of command looks like is you have a program manager, and the program manager is at this time, I believe, still required to have an LICSW, which is the clinical licensure. And then that job requirement, to my understanding, ceases at the program manager. So currently there's an administrator who is a clinician over Child Protective Services, but the further up you get the chain of command, for instance, the principal deputy director does not have a licensure, is not a social worker, and the director of the agency is not a social worker. The chief of staff is not a licensed social worker. So you have this issue where above the program manager or possibly above the administrator, there's a break in just common knowledge because there's not the same training, there's not the same ethics, there's not the same requirements. So in the District of Columbia, all social workers have to adhere to the National Association Social Work Code of Ethics, and that guides practice. And so when you have a break in the code of ethics that you're required to adhere to or break in the perspective, it can lead to conflict. And what I've seen in my career is individuals who are not clinicians will issue directives 
that are not in the best interest of the child, and those directives can be detrimental to the child. I've seen fatalities result as immediate and long-term responses to inappropriate directives that were not in support of the clinician who bore witness to the actual abuse or neglect being disclosed. I understand directives in an agency context, why there could be different directives of how to do things. I'm sure there are policies, issuances, other things about how to operate the organization and deal with certain situations like investigations, whatever it may be. But I guess what I'm wondering about the way you're talking, it sounds like there are directives from the very top levels in individual cases. Yes, and the directives I'm talking about usually are adverse to policy. So I'm not speaking of directives, you need to follow this policy. I'm speaking of directives based on individual cases. So for instance, a removal decision has to be approved from the top down. So even though a clinician in the field says this child needs to be removed for their safety and well-being, that decision has to either be supported or rejected by essentially the whole chain of command. All the way They've to tightened the down on this. Yeah, I mean, the director is notified of all removals or all pending removals. Often it's the principal deputy director that makes the final decision supporting or authorizing the removal. So you have, I wouldn't say it's a healthy check and balance system, but essentially you have a very tight check and balance system for removals. And since the district is attempting to get out of court oversight, there are benefits to keeping your removals down. So keeping the number of children in foster care lower. Over the years, you've seen a trend of foster care placements going down, and that can be through using illegal third-party placements, safety plans that are really not truly legally enforceable, or there are valid safety plans that would actually help children remain out of care, because I do believe in kin stepping in when they can. But there's a variety of motives that could not justify, but could be used as an explanation as to why certain things are done. Okay, so there's a lot of information there. Let's break it down a little bit. One is, what is a removal and when might that happen just in child welfare in general? There's two types of removals. There's an immediate removal and a court-ordered removal. An immediate removal means that the child's in immediate danger. The social worker might say the child has an injury. There's a long-term threat for the child. Typically, it's not risks. It's usually immediate injury, a critical event, an injury, sexual abuse, something that you cannot plan around. And the District of Columbia CFSA has the ability to conduct a removal of a child without a court order on scene with the authorization of the chain of command. The check and balance for that is they must go to court within 72 hours of that removal. And the judge will make the determination as to whether or not CFSA was justified in conducting that removal. And from there on, there would be an order to support either protective supervision, which is the child returning to the home with a court order for oversight, or 
the child being released to the parent if the judge determines that there is no reason for CFSA to conduct removal or a temporary order for the child to be in the care and custody of the state. So it sounds like there are a lot of checks and balances to ensure a child isn't taken from their home and placed in foster care unless it's absolutely necessary. There are a lot of places along that chain where there's a review of that. Now, if the social worker and supervisory social worker think the child's in danger and needs to be removed from the home, how do they get the authorization all the way up to the deputy director level? Is it an email, a phone conversation? How does that work? So typically it starts out with a phone conversation and then usually an email summary and depending on how much communication has to happen. Now, if there's a directive from leadership that is adverse to the clinical opinion, often what you find in FACES or the system that makes the record is a notation from either the clinician or the supervisor per the directive. And then they'll tell you, gave them the directive, per the directive, the child is remaining in the home with a safety plan, per the directive of, and then they'll give a detail as to what the directive is. In the social work world, that is code for a disagreement, and they've been overruled. So the clinician thinks the child's in danger, needs to be taken out of that home, and the deputy director or director can say, no, you're not doing that. We're going to do this alternative route. Correct. We're going to keep the child in the home either with services or some kind of plan or just not even anything. Correct. Okay. And does the chief of staff ever make those decisions too, the chief of staff to the director? At times, it really is going to be dependent on who's there and what sensitivity there is around the case. I've definitely seen either investigations or just during the course of servicing a case, whether in home or out of home, the decisions can be made by a variety of people, whether it's the chief of staff, general counsel, the director, the principal deputy director, usually high-profile cases, the final decision lies with leadership. So the social worker will do a summary of the case, and then leadership will make an ultimate decision. So the front line will make a recommendation. As ombudsman, I tend to find that frontline had the best interest of the child in their decisions and that the break was that leadership was being swayed by something other than immediate safety or risk of the child. And so I would make an argument as to why the clinician needed to be supported in their firsthand knowledge or assessment of the situation. You said that in high-profile cases, the leadership makes the decision, but it sounded like before you said they always have the final say. Leadership always has the final say for removals, but I would say when you have high-profile cases, they are more scrutinized, and the high-profile cases tend to be the ones where directives are issued. The law currently reads that the director of the agency has the right to conduct removal, so on and so forth, and they can delegate that power. So There's a systemic problem when the director of an agency is not a social worker, which is the workforce that they lead and the requirement to make those assessments. So there's a break in that. 
A removal, though, gets approved through the chain of command. And depending on how controversial it is, if I'm the administrator and I believe this is so cut and dry, I might say start the removal procedure while I consult with leadership because I don't think this is going to be highly contested in any way. What is the definition of a high-profile case? What would make something high-profile? The victim or the perpetrator being known in the political world or in the personal world of somebody or just being a famous individual. You could also have cases that are high profile because the news seems to be tracking that particular family or that particular incident. But essentially, anytime they think that there's going to be any scrutiny over action is going to probably be the key definition. And so you said that there's directives in high-profile cases more than in non-high-profile, meaning that the director would overrule the clinical decision in those kind of cases more than in the regular bread-and-butter cases. And did you find that when those directives were issued that they were not in conformance with policy? Often what you would find is the directives were not in adherence with policy procedure or even law, and also they weren't in support of the clinical observation. We have to remember D.C. is a very small political world, meaning the director of the agency sits right under the deputy mayor and the deputy mayor sits right under the mayor. So in really high-profile cases, there would be a consultation with the mayor's office, whether it was the deputy mayor or the mayor, and decisions could be influenced even at that level. Wow. So it could even go all the way to the mayor's office. Regarding, let's say, a removal or not to remove, was there in a high-profile case, is there any sort of theme to that? Like, would it normally come out that they wouldn't remove or they would remove or it would just depend on the situation? It would really depend on the situation. I've seen some removals take place because of pressure, and I've seen removals not take place. What I would say, though, the agency sways towards non-removal for a variety of reasons. And what about in the non-high-profile cases where a clinician thought removal was necessary? What percentage of cases would you see that being overruled approximately? It's really difficult to say because often I would find out after a major Mm, event or after there was a complaint. Just because of the role I played as an ombudsman, it would take some digging to really find out where this disconnect happened. And so I thought in my career as a CPS and a CPS supervisor in medical abuse cases. So I can say that I've had firsthand experience being overruled or working on cases where there were directives given where I was severely uncomfortable. But I could say in the last two years of my tenure as ombudsman, often I would see it after a child fatality I sat on the board, the internal child fatality review. I sat on the mayor's executive office board through OCME or office of chief medical examiner, the child fatality review committee. 
I also would review fatalities at the request of the director on case-specific. And so I had a lot of inside experience or knowledge about the fatalities taking place in the, in the district. I'm the only clinician that's been a part of the DC Child Fatality Response Mechanism, internal, the critical events, the CPS fatalities, uh, conducted research on behalf of the deputy mayor and the executive mayor through community stabilization. I've sat on both the internal and external committees by the mayor and the ombudsman that handled rights violations. So I'm the only clinician that has touched every mechanism to review child fatalities in the district. And when were you, when did you last work at CFSS? 2017. And have you been in touch with clinicians since then to see if anything's changed or if it stayed the same? Yeah, I, I do have a frequent communication with different parties that work internal and external to CFSA or are bits and pieces of the puzzle throughout the district because it doesn't always, especially with child fatalities, it doesn't just always reside with CFSA. And so I've I've tried to keep myself up to date on current issues that our social workers are confronted with, and I've also read a lot of CFSA's publications or response to D.C. City Council's questions for oversight and their answers, which I find concerning. So this is an area that I have a particular interest in. And I've had a lot of trouble when I have tried to find public data about child death due to abuse and neglect. When you look at the reports from the Child Fatality Commission and even the internal report that CFSA issues every year, the reviews cover deaths that happen over a period of years. So it's hard to tell whether the number of deaths is increasing or decreasing. And then you can tell what deaths are a result of abuse because they're homicides. But it's very difficult to know what number of deaths are attributable to neglect because there are so many that are suffocation related that might be listed as accidental deaths due to unsafe sleeping or unsafe bedding. And so it's been really a struggle to even know how this is counted. So I'm really interested to hear from you how you've seen deaths due to abuse and neglect recorded and counted, and then also just your specific experience to the extent that you can talk about that. I know you have confidentiality issues with regard to specific cases, but just sort of as a more general matter, how often you saw fatalities as a result of abuse and neglect that occurred as a result of CFSA taking action or failing to take action when they should have, and then how that's recorded so that the public and the council can hold the agency accountable for doing their job. Right. I think that there is some faulty information out there, and I think there's also a misunderstanding from the community about what certain committees serve as, and that leads to confusion, and it's super complicated by CFSA's claim to confidentiality. So 
what I found is CFSA typically does a blanket, well, it's confidential and you're not eligible to get the material to review. So from the outside, it's almost impossible to get a very clear view on what's happening. You really have to almost have inside information to be able to say, Definitively, this is connected to this. I know when I was present at CFSA, the current mechanisms reviewing child fatalities are really put in place to come up with recommendations to prevent future fatalities and really doesn't look at nor are they structured to hold people accountable that have failed. And so what you get is you get this you know, kind of rosy view, oh, well, this is something we can do different in the future and it will make it better. But what's absent is where did we fail and are some of those failures egregious enough that we need to take definitive action as a precaution? So one of the things that I've often pointed to and I pointed to in my last city council testimony was You have the director saying for 2018 there were zero fatalities due to abuse and neglect. And for 2019, there's not even a public question about it. It's a written question, and the question isn't as targeted as it needs to be. And CFSA's response was there was eight child fatalities, and they break down. There were some in-home, there were some out-of-home, and there were some in foster care. And that leaves me as a clinician really sad and confused because you don't know why did this child die in foster care? You know, they were removed from abusive and neglectful situation. How did we as a system cause the ultimate abuse and neglect while in our care? And I think that was the majority of them. But some of the questions that we need to be asking as a community aren't currently asked by any of the forums. And the questions really need to be more targeted as to why are fatalities going up and not down. Our foster care numbers are going down and our fatalities are going up. And that's a major indicator as to whether or not the system is adhering to their duty to protect their children. And just surely from those numbers, it looks like a neglect of duty. There's so many more in-depth questions we can ask, but I think getting back to some of your questions, you start to look at the systems that are in place. How do we hold them accountable? It's really difficult to do that because I think there's a break from what the community wants and what the committee believes their role is. And then you're correct. There's very difficult to determine. You can cross-reference homicides with abuse cases, but are we actually recording child fatalities in a way where we know it was related to neglect? So from an outside perspective, it's very difficult to hold child welfare accountable when a lot of the core data is missing and it's kind of shrouded in this, well, it's confidential piece of the puzzle. So let's talk about the eight deaths in 2019 that you referred to. Can we even tell what those eight deaths were from, whether they were related to abuse and neglect or if they just happened to occur while the child was in care? Is there any way to know, did the child die of an asthma attack because they didn't have their inhaler or was the child beaten to death or did the child drown? Like, is there any way for the public to know that information? There would be a way if council would ask more direct and defined questions. So the question that I'm referring to, council asked, provide the number of children who suffered fatal incidents 
while in CFSA care with the breakdown of whether the child is in home, in foster care, reunified, or otherwise placed. And CFSA's answer was during fiscal year 19, there were eight children in youth fatalities while in CFSA care. Four families had open foster care slash permanency cases, three had open in-home cases, and one not in care had an open family assessment, as well as an open CPS investigation at the time of the child's death. No children or youth have suffered fatal incidents while in CFSA's care during fiscal year 2020. That wasn't necessarily true by the time the oral testimony was taken, but no one asked any questions. So part of the recommendation that I made to counsel is asking more defined questions around those cases. And there's a caveat. So if a child dies, but they've not been at the attention of CFSA, but there's a call in, that should also fall under this criteria. But the wording is so vague that you could not count. They weren't under the purview of the agency at the time of death. So even if somebody had called the hotline and reported, I think this child is being abused and neglected, and that child later died, that wouldn't be counted in that question? In theory, so the way counsel asked the question, children who suffered fatal incidences while in care, while in CFSA care, So care in custody is typically in foster care, in-home, provided out-of-home services, or open investigation. So for instance, I could massage that question to answer, and I think they've done it orally in testimony before, that the child died, had never had a call in, or the calls that were in weren't substantiated, or maybe they were, but but the case management had closed. And so there's a call into the system. So technically, they weren't in care at the time of the incident. Now, I think the vagueness of CFSA's answers lead to more questions, which is what I posed in my testimony was, we really need to dive deep into these questions and ask them follow-up questions. Was the alleged perpetrator substantiated in the civil registry? Was the alleged perpetrator prosecuted criminally? How are you protecting other children in the household? Things of that nature. So like what happened and how are we following up on that? So those are some questions that can begin the discussion. So let me just jump in. So the question the council asked would not include fatalities where either there hadn't been any calls to CFSA prior to the death or any CFSA involvement of any type prior to the death, even if it was a child fatality death. It also would not report calls to the hotline regarding that child prior to the death that were screened out and or, for whatever reason, not actually investigated. Those would not be included in the numbers that CFSA was reporting to the council in response to this question. In theory, it could even be children who had prior services from CFSA that weren't current. So the question is fatal incidents while in CFSA care. Now, I honestly don't know whether or not they included those or did not include those, but I know from prior years' testimony, there has been some dancing around words that would lead me to question this further to really lock down a clear understanding of what's happening with child fatalities. So 
actually going back to our discussion earlier, it also would not catch a directive situation potentially where there was an investigation, the social workers thought the child should be removed, the directive said no, the case was closed, and then the child dies. That wouldn't be included in a response to that question either, potentially. Correct. How the question is worded, it does not capture anything that's not open currently. Yeah, really interesting. And can you talk a little bit more about the misunderstanding of what people think the Child Fatality Review Committee is supposed to do and what the committee thinks it's supposed to do and how that results in not the kind of information that would be helpful to ensuring that avoidable child deaths don't happen in the future? So I'll use the premise of a true ombudsman's office versus the Child Fatality Committee. I think what people think the Child Fatality Committee is doing is investigating the death itself and determining if there was rights violations or violations of law or violations of policy and procedure that contributed to the death and then holding those parties accountable. That is not what that committee does. What that committee does is takes the information from all of the servicing entities, so maybe CFSA, DHS, the medical providers, and they compile all of the known data into a report, and that report is shared with the committee members who then read the report and then say, hey, you know, it looks like the kid had 30 days absent from school and I don't see a correlating call to Child Protective Services to ask why the child wasn't present. And so I'm making the recommendation that we actively target teachers for mandated reporter training and so that the teachers are more aware of their duty and given that we can catch social systems earlier and then at the end of the year, they take all of the recommendations from each of the children, summarize it into a big thing, and say to the committee members, based on what we've reviewed this year, do you think that there are systemic changes that we could make? And those systemic changes tend to go into the yearly report along with a number-based system on how many kids they've reviewed and what they found amongst them. Whereas an ombudsman, if you had an ombudsman office established, anytime there was a child fatality, there would be the investigative piece, not just review of the records, but asking questions of individuals participating in the case, looking for any further directives, trying to determine if there is a distinction between the clinical recommendation and any impediment upon that, whether at any level. They would be looking to see whether or not the child's rights were violated, the family's rights were violated, and then based on their findings, they would piece out those findings to the appropriate people. What, what I think the community thinks they're getting is not what the function 
is of that particular committee. And since I've sat on those committees, I know kind of the internal discussions that they've had. And the discussions really are about systemic changes because they're looking at it from the perspective that this child has already passed away. We can't change that reality. And but how do we make differences for the future? So no one's investigating each of these child deaths on a case-by-case basis to determine in that particular case what agencies were involved with that family, what information was or wasn't provided to agencies, why did the child die, was there anything these government agencies could or, or didn't do to prevent that death, and what could be done better in the future based on that particular case? No. I so think what I find the most shocking about this is that not only is it not anybody's job to investigate and to hold the agency accountable and to see if the agency is doing their job, it's that it's not even anybody's job to get an accurate count of how many kids in D.C. are dying of abuse and neglect each year and whether that number is going up or down. I think because there's a disconnect between the systems that make that determination and other places. So in theory, the chief medical examiner's office should have an accurate count just because what's on the death certificate should be accurate. But you also find that there could be a disconnect between, say, the child besides the SIDS, but it really is a questionable SIDS. Maybe it was suffocation due to lack of supervision. So how is it recorded in Child Protective Registry? Is it recorded as a child fatality due to lack of supervision, or is it just neglect lack of supervision, and then you don't even count it as a child fatality because it went under the neglect code? So there are many areas of disconnect that won't be rectified unless you have someone looking at it comprehensively and for the sole purpose of holding entities accountable, which is distinctly different than systemic changes. So I'm a little confused. You talked about the fact that you were the ombudsperson, and now you're saying there needs to be an ombudsperson to ensure accountability. What's the difference of what you're talking about? I know there is already now someone that replaced you as ombuds at the agency, why are you talking about an ombudsperson? So I think the basic concept is this. Any ombudsman that is a true ombudsman needs to adhere to a code of ethics and a standardized system. Also, there's a fundamental flaw with an ombudsman being under the supervision of the agency that they are investigating. And when that agency has the final call on what information goes public, what goes in reports, or how to define your job. So for instance, since I was ombudsman, the job description has been stripped. The policy that I initially wrote was stripped and published. And essentially, the functions of the office changed dramatically. So the ombudsman that's currently functioning at CFSA is much closer to an advocacy ombudsman with no investigatory authority. And that ombudsman does not sit on the child fatality review committees like I did. That ombudsman is not a clinician and does not have the appropriate experience or education to really review clinical decisions. She's not licensed. She's not a social worker. And so there are many distinctions in that. 
to have a true ombudsman, it would need to be outside of the agency so there was true independence. The ombudsman would need to be able to have a legislative base to have the confidentiality and investigatory powers. Those powers should be aligned with a national organization that guides social workers for governments and there needs to be very clear purview and power defined in the legislation. Now, some ombudsmen in different jurisdictions have the ability off the top anytime there's a child fatality to investigate that. But that's a very distinct thing within child welfare. So the model legislation for an ombudsman doesn't have that inherent ability, which is why I've advocated that the DC ombudsman for child welfare or just children's rights in the district could do child welfare, juvenile justice, mental health, health issues, school issues, essentially anything dealing with a child under the age of 18. But the advocacy is that that ombudsman be immediately alerted when a child fatality takes place in the district have a very credible review process for how you conduct an investigation about that fatality and how you issue information to the public while adhering to confidentiality. So that's my advocacy kind of core, and those are the main distinctions between what is currently happening versus what I would like to see happen. And as a result of your advocacy and some other advocates, including us in the D.C. community, some proposed legislation was introduced by Councilmember Nadeau's office to establish such an independent ombudsperson. And there was a public hearing on that last October. Do you have any sense of what the status of that legislation is at this point? My understanding is that people see the value in the legislation and would like to proceed, but we're in an unprecedented time where funds are an immediate issue, determining how you're going to fund such an agency and where that agency would reside. My recommendation is that agency reside outside of the executive office because, as I mentioned earlier, D.C. is very tiny and the executive office at times has immediate decision-making authority within child welfare, but they also make the determination of what reports to issue publicly. So if you put an ombudsman under the executive office and that executive office doesn't want to look bad regarding one particular agency, there is always the threat or perceived threat that a report could be revised to make the district function look better than it currently is. And when you say the executive, you mean the mayor? Yes, the executive office of the mayor. But the executive branch of government essentially ends at the mayor in the District of Columbia. So just to explain about the court oversight, you've mentioned that a number of times. There's a federal class action lawsuit called the LaShawn case by a child rights group on behalf of child plaintiffs who hadn't been served by the agency properly. And it's been about 30 years because the agency has never been able to meet 
the exit standards that the court set out for them to get out from court oversight. However, recently the court approved a settlement agreement between the agency and the plaintiff whereby they could get out of court oversight by as early as March 2021. So in light of the fact that there potentially won't be court oversight as of March 2021 and no court monitor who was also appointed by the court to oversee CFSA, it seems like an ombudsperson is really something that should be considered at this juncture. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's something that is an immediate need, and I think given that the monitor is going to be going away, my advocacy is also that the ombudsman should be a clinician with a history in child welfare, so they have the experience and the education along with the licensure to really dive into clinical decisions to see whether or not they are true clinical decisions. I think sometimes social workers will say to you, it's my clinical decision, but there has to be a rationale behind it. There has to be a theory behind it. There has to be an assessment of safety. And so I believe an ombudsman who's looking into investigating a social welfare system where social workers are the workforce, you really have to have somebody who understands the code of ethics to be able to do that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because we've come across that as lawyers. Obviously, we're not clinicians. And so when we question the agency about some of their decisions, the response is always, well, we have the right to make the clinical decisions. You can't look behind that. Even though for someone like us, we're not social workers, but I think the reasonable person standard would even find in a lot of the cases them backing into clinical decisions that don't make sense and that should be reviewed to ensure that they're appropriate and in line with whatever standards and not made because of the political reasons you spoke about before. Right. And that's a wrap of the first part of our interview with Christian Green. Stay tuned for next week when we talk more about child fatalities, an independent ombudsperson, and how to make child welfare in the district better for children and families. I did want to mention that I had submitted a FOIA request to the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner in D.C., and he indicated that he did not keep records of the perpetrator of child fatalities in the district. So although there could be a number of child fatalities, we don't know if they were the result of a parent or caregiver or a result of a car accident by an unknown, unrelated person. If you have questions for Christian Green before our next episode, you can email info at dckincare.org and she has agreed to answer any of your questions. We'll see you next time.